Right now, all information is going through our eyes because we all have these screen devices everywhere. And when you get into the space around people with a visual impairment who don't have access to that site, you really quickly see how heavily biased communicating information is, is toward, you know, like visual and then like audio is secondary. And one of the things that we, we, we talked to someone and he said that, uh, you know, blindness isn't a, it's not a disease. It's an information barrier. He's like, I just want access to the same information that you do, like that you have access to. Like, you know, there's an elevator here. I want to know there's an elevator here too. I don't need it in the same way, but I want to know that the elevator is here as well. And so in my mind, it's like disability is really is, is a design problem because if, if none of us could see, we wouldn't have built the world where sight was necessary. This week's guests are Keith Kirkland and Kevin Yu, co-founders of New York-based wearable tech startup WearWorks. In part two, we discuss the evolution of WearWorks. Keith explains how his interests in design, movement and technology fused to lead him to a realization that he could use technology to teach movement. As a Matrix lover, he asks himself the question, can I create a suit that teaches me Kung Fu? To answer this question, he and his partner Kevin set out to create a new language based on touch. Called haptic technology, their first experiment in this technology was to create a haptic device that could assist a blind runner to compete in the New York Marathon unaided. Kevin explains the journey and the wave they are riding as they build this new language and the complex interdependencies that exist. We also discuss the reality of funding that most startups face, the challenges of finding the right investors, and Keith discusses the importance of impact, purpose, sustainability, and why they created the company to be remote from the very start. We also discuss their roadmap and how their technology will evolve. Kevin unpacks the importance of inclusive design and the value of incorporating that within touch and the power of touch as an educational and instructional tool and where this goes when it interacts with augmented reality and virtual reality. We also discuss their guiding principles and the relationship as founders. I think this episode provides much insight into the reality of what running a startup involves, dealing with failures, uncertainty, persistence, and the importance of character and relationships. So I hope you enjoy the vision, candor, and resilience of Keith Kirkland and Kevin Yu. Maybe we could um, uh, pivot down to your coming together under your business and your entrepreneurial life. I mean, I've watched, um, I've watched your TED Talk, uh, Keith, and seen a couple of the interviews and heard you talk about Kung Fu and wanting to build a Kung Fu suit, which probably <laughs> dates back to something around your relationship with your brother and the fighting and, so, and surviving, <laughs> surviving on the streets. But we love to understand about serendipity and where serendipity uh, played a part. And maybe you could just both talk about the, the coming together and how the company was formed. And then we can get into the specifics of it and what you're building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kev, you want to go first? Uh, I like hearing your stories first. It's nice. Uh, serendipity. Serendipity. So presently, it's just like how, how we started the company. Yeah, how did you meet? You weren't on the same in the same class at Pratt. You were in different uh, tracks. That's true. That's true. No, this is this is, a, this is actually cool. I, we haven't talked about this in a while. So, uh, our third co-founder Yong, who's no longer like fully with us, he's now you know built a house and now it's like having a family and such. So, but Yong and I became really good friends. And how Keith and I became friends uh, is, is relevant to how Yong and I became good friends. The Yong is a grad student at ID. Keith is grad student at ID. I was undergrad. So we had a little bit of an age gap and also like, you know, educational gap as well. But I liked not hanging out with my peers because a lot of them were doing a lot of stupid stuff, honestly. They were so conceptualizing and uh, none of them had any kind of realism applications really at the point because, you know, you can imagine kind of excitement, excitement in people being able to have freedom to design something with a problem. And uh, the solutions, obviously, without any attachment to physics or engineering or any kind of data, uh, you can imagine what the re- results will come out to be. And it's sometimes ridiculous. So that was one of the main things that I found out off the bat, including my stuff too, right? And um, Yong and I became good friends because he was a, a good engineer. He was a good mechanical engineer. Uh, he came from the background as Keith from engineering background, became a, a designer. And Yong and I had, you know, interesting combination of ideas that we we saw from each other's work. So we would go to each other's studio to take a look at each other's work and say, hey, I like this thing. And we would kind of complement each other's stuff. And then over time, we decided to make furniture. So the first company that was started before Wearworks for me was with Young for sustainable furniture and one-off pieces and so on. So we dedicated a lot of our time 
our resources into making furniture, which we were very, very passionate about. Uh, we would go to Connecticut together to my parents' house and we'll use up all the equipment. We'll buy CNC machines and we'll like make, you know, we'll take wood from, you know, uh, Rico Brooklyn, which is a, a local place in Brooklyn that we always get wood from. They'll start giving us some free wood that were like reclaimed and we'll use them to make ginormous coffee tables and whatnot. And we spent so much time just drooling and designing and loving furniture. It sounds very like uh, much like uh, is it the company here in Brooklyn called From the Source. Yeah, From the Source. Yeah, that's uh, it's, uh, it's, I want I want to say it's similar. So our collection was called Pewter Collection, and we used pewter, which is a, a very you know, low melting point metal. It's ninety nine percent copper and one percent tin. We took that and we melted it into a trumpet like shape inside of the wood cavity, and then we'll fuse it with uh, aluminum or steel legs. And by doing that, so the, the pewter fuses with the metal, but it doesn't fuse with the wood. So we will create this joint. And then once after you're finished using it, you can just kind of crack it and recycle everything. It's, everything is still in raw form, practically. There's no glues, there's no chemicals, there's nothing. So I really like this concept. And you know, we really went far with it. We were showcasing the Miami Art Festival as well. And you know, we have some good connections out there. Anyways, so from that, Yong and I became really, really close and uh, talked a lot about engineering and design. And then Keith came about because, uh, you know, they're in the same class and such. And I was like, wow, this guy's stuff is really cool. Very different, very fashion oriented. I like that. And then I was part of this digital arts and human research center called Dark. And I started to get Yong involved in it. It was more like this bridging between multiple disciplines within uh, designers, also architects, also artists and everything. So I was really, I was really excited about multidiscipline talents of people just getting together and just doing a really grand, awesome scale project. And pavilions for me was it. So I was designing pavilions, which came from sculpture, which came from all these things. And I was designing a pavilion for GE, which actually won this competition. Uh, and I also made another one for West Palm Beach in Florida, which I did not win that one. And then I designed one for Pratt itself, which was a collaborative environment, which is the reason why I went to the Dark Arts and Human Research Center to get people to help me do it. And so I got young involved. And then once after I got young involved, we started doing stuff around haptics a little bit. Uh, I was working at a company called General Vibrations as one of the partner. And I was designing this, these haptic instruments that were called Gemini drives. So I was working on these things. And then my senior year, this was when things got really interesting. You know, like we definitely, Keith and I definitely, and young, we, we were not those slacking off type of guys, uh, maybe in classes, but definitely we're focused in our own passions. And we both ended up being part of the Metropolitan Museum exhibition showcase. For one year, we had to develop and work, but we had like an intern title because it was a Met Media Lab and we were working there and and developing the exhibition uh, for our own passion project. And so this is where we really came together under one roof under a pretty amazing organization. And we had the opportunity to showcase something that we wanted everybody to see that was emerging of technology and art. So that was it. That was perfect. And Keith started doing it with fashion. I was doing it with 3D printing, uh, edible objects out of sugar. It was the first time ever it was done with a machine in California back when it just came out. And I made an 18th century medieval rosary bead. It was, it was like a crazy intricate piece of wood. I made it into a digital file using a medical program and then made it into uh, sugar, which was served at the Met Gala and so on. So like, this was wh- where we were really just like, the, the highlight of technology, art, and fun, and everything was all really in, in, in this Met place for me, the Metropolitan Museum. And Keith and I became good friends. That's when, for me, the biggest impact to memory was spending late nights at the Met, you know, doing awesome stuff, talking about each other's projects, like, what are we going to do? We're going to have to showcase this. I, I, think that, I think that's pretty much the end of it. You know, Keith and I just, for me, I started to really like Keith and respect his work. And everything about what he was doing was very interesting to me at the Met. And that's when we started to bond. Okay. So Keith, perhaps you can talk about, well, did you, first of all, did you create WearWorks together? Or did Keith, did you do this yourself initially? I, I think you muted Keith. Sorry, yeah. We, no, we, we did it together. Okay. So maybe you could just talk about your, your interest and growing interest in haptics and that technology and explain for people that maybe don't know what haptics is, uh, what it is as a 
as a technology. Yeah, perfect. And so haptic means ever relating to the sense of touch. And so the thing that got me really interested in the space is while I was at Pratt, I signed up for this uh, program called Global Innovation Design. And Global Innovation Design was a partnership between Keio University in Tokyo, the Royal College of Art and Imperial College in London, and Pratt Institute to basically train the next wave of like global designers. And so you would go to every location and every student would switch until you eventually ended up getting back home. So I spent six months studying media design in Tokyo. Brilliant. I spent six months or four months studying innovative design engineering at Royal College of Art and Imperial in London. And while I was gone and while I was out there, I, I came back and I was like, I had to work on a thesis and that, what will I do? And while I was gone, I realized that like, I really miss fashion. Like, you know, like molding and like 3D printing. And like, when we finally did a cut and sew project, I just felt like I was at home, you know, like, cause I'm a great pattern maker. And so I was like, okay, cool. Let me see how can I combine fashion and do it in a way that like feels good to my soul, you know? And I had always been, I got interested in the technology aspects because when I was in Japan and in London, I saw some ridiculously crazy stuff that I'm just like, like, I mean, like I saw this machine that you stand in and it spins around and it creates like a perfect 3D environment. You like hover up. It's like a space. It's like the stuff I saw was kind of like amazing. And I'm like, hmm, fashion and technology came wearable technology. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, wearable technology can be like blood readers or like pulse takers, or it could be so much like, what do I want to, focus on. And I realized that I always had this passion for movement. Like I studied martial arts most of my life. I I picked up skateboarding on my 33rd birthday, you know, and I also had a lot of injuries for movement because in those first weeks and months, you have no idea what you're doing. You do something wrong. Then you injured a major muscle group. You need to do that movement. And all of a sudden you have to switch movement. So when I had to stop running, it's not like my running friends or my skateboarding friends. I had to to find all new friends. It's like entire, I had to uproot an entire community. And I was wondering if there was a way to kind of teach movement in a better way and bring movement learning into like the future. And so basically, I spent my thesis uh, in the space of design, movement, and technology. And, and what kind of came out of it was uh, I saw the Matrix a thousand times, and I thought it'd be really cool if you can like make a suit that could teach you Kung Fu by downloading it and giving you feedback in real time as you made errors. And so that was like the foundation of what... And I realized, I was like, holy crap, all this technology exists. Like, if I had motion capture data to know what my current posture was, motion capture data of an expert to know what my posture should be, some technology that can scale my body to the expert's body or vice versa, and you know, like some way of communicating information that you should move and change, I could simulate this whole experience. And I was like, how do you do that? And at the time, I was dating a woman. She was a, a classically trained dancer of 14 years, and she was a yoga and Pilates instructor. And I was typing on my, literally I was writing the paper on my computer, like how do I teach movement like without someone being in a room to tell you what to do? And then she just walked over behind me and like put her thumb in my back and her index finger on my shoulder and was like, and then just walked off without saying a word. And I was like, holy crap, if I had vibrating motors, but she put each of her fingers, I wouldn't need her to be in the room to do that. And I was like, why has no one thought of this before? This is kind of crazy. And so and the thing I later realized that the reason no, no one's, not that it hasn't been thought of, but the reason that's been difficult to do is because if I want you to raise your elbow two inches off the table using vibration, how do I tell you to do that? You know, like there's no vibrating language that says buzz, buzz, buzz means raise elbow two inches up, right? That need to be created. And language creation and language acquisition are both ridiculously time consuming and challenging things. And so I was like, okay, I really want to build this suit. But in order to build this suit, I need a language. So when I left my thesis and I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm going to go figure out a way to build this language so that I can build this suit. And, you know, right around that time, you know, Kevin said we were working at the Met together, you know, like Young and I were really, really close. Like we were part of this like overnight crew where it's like the people who could manage their time good enough to get their work done in like regular working hours. So like we were out, you know, working at 3 a.m., you know, like, and so we had like a whole crew of like people that were us and Yang was in that crew for me. And so I, at some point, I remember uh, Kevin and Yang approached me. We were in the dark together. Kevin and I were in the Met together. And Yang, they had approached me and it was like, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing with haptics. You did have this for a whole year. You want to join us? And I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. 
And I honestly, I can't say I put, I can't say I put really any mm-hmm. thought in it. It was like, it was like, I knew Kevin's work from the Met, um, from the Met. So I knew his work was really good. And I, I was just really, really cool with Young. So I was just like, oh, this seems like, hey, it seems funner than doing it by myself because I'm going to do it anyway. Might as well do it with some people. And then we, we took that idea and we like, okay, Kung Fu is like, what are we going to do? Like Kung Fu is like way too hard. You need like millimeter accuracy with like millisecond precision and three-dimensional space, you know, like using haptics, like all wirelessly connected and with multiple points all over your body. And, you know, for me, it was like, Kevin was like, met a friend who was blind and was like, hey, I think there's some opportunities in navigation. And for me, the navigation opportunity represented a simpler form of movement than Kung Fu. So instead of like lots of dots, you have one. Instead of like millimeter accuracy, you have five meter resolution for GPS. Instead of three-dimensional spaces, two dimensions. And the commands are really simple. You go straight, you turn left, you turn right, wrong way, you've arrived. And so I was like, if we can build an intuitive subset of language for this simplified version, then I can take these learnings and like millimeterize it, you know, like, and add, make it Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. But, you know, honestly, I, I didn't expect that it would take five years to figure it out, though. I, I thought it was like a one-year thing. Can I make a suggestion? Please do tennis. <laughs> I need, I'm no Andy Murray, but you know, yeah. I reckon my serve could be so much better with a bit of haptic commands. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what I'm saying? Like those are some, definitely some areas that we're interested in exploring. Like, cause you know, like we, we have the, the one use case for our device, but we really see it as a really like you have all this skin and right now all information is going through our eyes because we all have these screen devices everywhere. And when you get into the space around people with a visual impairment who don't have access to that site, you really quickly see how heavily biased communicating information is, is toward, you know, like visual and then like audio as secondary. And one of the things that we, we, we talked to someone and he said that, uh, you know, blindness isn't a, it's not a disease. It's an information barrier. He's like, I just want access to the same information that you do, like that you have access to. Like, you know, there's an elevator here. I want to know there's an elevator here too. I don't need it in the same way, but I want to know that the elevator is here as well. And so in my mind, it's like disability is really is, is a design problem because if, if none of us could see, we wouldn't have built the world where sight was necessary. And so it's like, it creates a very unique opportunity and position to like design something that's really amazing while rethinking all the things that we think are standard. So your prototype for this, you built it and you actually road tested it in the New York Marathon, your first version in 2018 or was it 17? 2017. 17, yeah. And you helped a a blind runner uh, get to 15 miles before obviously something you didn't uh, design for. <laughs> which is the water impact in a rainstorm uh, stopped them at 50 miles. But where have you taken it since then? And where do you see the further development of haptic technology as a language beyond just the use case of for, for people that are blind? Yeah, I think Kevin can talk much more around the specifics of the product and I'll let him handle that piece of it. That's kind of like his ownership. But I think from the concept point of view, the marathon taught us a few things that were really critical. I mean, okay, I mean, waterproofing is important. (laughs) We we learned that one. But it taught us how how deeply, like how a city impacts location-based services, like tall buildings bounce GPS signals around, you know, like lots of other people using data in a similar area might have like some adverse impacts. And then the big metal buildings create magnetic potholes that essentially alter where we think magnetic north is in a, you know, within a particular like tiny location. And so what we saw is we saw like, wow, okay, this, we proved that it works and we proved to the world that this works because the world didn't know what the word haptic meant really, you know, like let alone that how you could possibly navigate someone using only touch. Everyone was like, Oh, you wear two devices, right? And I, the left one buzzes when you turn left and the right one buzzes when you turn right. And we're like, no, it's one device. And they're kind of like, how? Right. And so we realized that there was a lot of work that needed to be done. And so that's what we've been working on for the past few years. And Kev, if you want to take them through some of the some of those changes. Yeah. Um, I actually just talked to uh, Simon Recroft himself yesterday. <laughs> we have a bi-weekly meeting. I, I actually did a lot of work with him. Uh, I lived with him. You know, I ran with him the marathon myself. So, you know, we, we have this 
brotherhood bond of <laughs> the worst, you know, of times, like looking at each other's faces at the very end, just like getting to the end and be like, wow, we're dead. And, uh, you know, the saints just hallucinating things like, oh, like, hey, our legs are like jello, right? You know? I don't know. But we just say like a bunch of really, really crazy stuff. So in the end of the day, like Simon and I have this deep you know, connection that's, uh, that I guess like normal friends don't really go through that kind of pain together unless, you know, traumatic happens or something crazy happens. So I really feel that with Simon. When we were running, there was a lot of frustration. There was an incredible amount of stress I was like, I was developing and I was creating and I was tweaking things until the very last moment. And, you know, the marathon is early. It's not like 5 p.m. It starts. It's like it starts really early. And you get everybody together, go in a car, like drive over there. You're like shifting around like 50,000 people and you get to your zone. It's a really stressful time. So I, I remember staying up until about 2, 3 in the morning the night before, just kind of charging up all the way bands, making sure they're all like good to go. Making sure the app is fully uploaded with like all the calibration processes done and just making sure everything is fine. And I, I remember everybody was sleeping in like little futons and blow up, uh, you know, couches. And I was just kind of standing there like looking at the people super late at night, like, wow, we got to do this tomorrow. Like, holy crap. So I think that was like the, the beginning of the excitement, but the actual run itself, there were so, so many technical difficulties. It was, it was unbelievable. This was not made to be ran in a marathon, let me say that much. It was like just, we're just getting to the point where you can get around to the grocery store from your house that's about like three blocks away and to come back safely. And we're like, yes, yeah, yeah, we did that. But now it was all of a sudden 26.2 miles of constant running. Uh, battery life was something so, so important. There's so many, there's what's called mast, pretty much data that was being altered by so many people using it. Stream live uh, videos, pictures, Instagram, Facebook, what have you. It's just like messing everything up. So that was one thing that I just didn't see coming. Uh, I predicted some stuff with Simon that that was going to be an, an issue. I didn't know how to solve it. Uh, so we bought this separate GPS equipment called Bad Elf. We'll put it on the other side of Simon's arm. So he had this uh, access extra GPS tool that allowed higher connection with satellite systems. And he had the weight band on his other arm. And he had the phone which he had to, uh, it was, which was put on like a uh, chest area and alongside is, you know, I kept shifting it over because it's a lot of stuff. You know, you got to carry your phone, you have to have the wave band, you got to have this like new GPS system, like what are you a robot? So it was definitely uncomfortable running experience for all of us to, to do that, but it was what it was. And Simon also had to have the ultrasonic sensor as well on his chest, which identified people in front of him. So I was just making sure all these things were working and um, make sure that it wasn't, overwhelming or whatever, just keep changing and altering the, the settings as we get to you know, bridges, as we get to more tighter environments. Uh, as he was getting tired with haptic you know, sensation, I had to like reduce and increase. And this was stuff that stressed me out in the middle of the run as well. So, you know, personal things aside, yeah, Keith mentioned a lot of the points that, that we, we knew we had to solve. So the original plan was to launch the product like as soon as the marathon ended. You know, we were going to be like, yeah, finished by now. But, but we weren't able to do that because there were so many problems. And Simon and I, we met up in the morning the next day after the run. And I literally couldn't walk. I remember my ex-girlfriend at the time, she had to carry me to the Uber where I had to take the car and meet him at the cafe and have people come out to help me get up to sit down at the cafe. I mean, it was my first marathon. So I was like, wow, this is really awful. But, you know, we sat down, we finally sat down, we were talking about it. And Simon said to me, he's like, listen, Kev, like, that was amazing. We, we're, we've done something historic and this is the greatest moment of my life, but the product is not ready. And I said, I agree. I agree. Because I was right there with him, you know, and problems that we faced were something that we could not fix tomorrow. We knew that off the bat. It was going to take time. Uh, we knew it wasn't, some of it was not under our control. Satellite systems and GPS accuracies, we, don't, we just can't control that. We can't buy more satellites and fly them up. So that created a lot of confusion amongst me and the team. Like, how do I bring this information back to the team and to you know, Keith and say, hey, I know we were supposed to launch today. It's supposed to be a big day, but like, we got to postpone it for indefinitely. And um, this was something that was really difficult to talk about. The problems were really just 
not solvable. So what do we do? It was really like a, a big wall we hit. We thought we were going to just jump over it and just get right into the into revenue and right into the stream of wealth and prosperity. But bam, we hit this huge wall that's just, you know, unmovable. So that was a big moment of realism hitting us in the face, right? We're startup founders. We're excited. We're kind of dumb, optimistic. And then, you know, we're just doing whatever we can. And we got great press, right? TED Talk, Discovery Channel documentary is all these great things were following us. And they were also as excited as we were. But what people definitely did not understand deep inside of the technology was real challenges that it takes the human civilization efforts to get to the next level. And we have to ride that wave in order for us to improve our, our device because we're really an output, output of information through touch, through technology of haptics and language creation, all these things. And the backend side of the input of data of the GPS information, all these things, they needed to improve itself as a nation, as a, as a whole civilization of people. So this is something that we had to wait for. But luckily now it's happening. So we knew that it was going to start happening. We knew that we had about a two-year timeline uh, in order for it to actually start getting, uh, getting there. And it got delayed again. So 5G comes out, all these things and, and, and things are coming out. But we knew that it would still take time for actual implementation onto the phones, actual implementation on, onto, into the platforms and the software and the actual, you open it up and it's actually doing it. That We knew that implementation would take time. So that's what we learned. And uh, we, we just made sure that we were ready. So by having the Wayband waterproof to not ever have it die midway. And Simon and I were just talking yesterday about how we're planning ourselves for the second run. And this time around, we're going to get to the finish line. And that's going to be the actual big news. That's going to be the actual big thing. So we're excited for that. So where are you with, I mean, your startup, presumably you need investment. Do you have funding from angels or from VCs? What stage are you at? And how do you manage the pressure of uh, the all startups face when they're expected to scale and grow? When you're, as you've acknowledged the technology, they're, they're aspects to this that are beyond your control, whether it be the data or the networks. Yeah. Okay, let me just say this real quick. I guess since we do have a lot of new, new news, the funding side was, was definitely the 100% complicated equation that you can never put into paper. It's, it's something that's in the ether. We just got to work around it. A lot has a lot to do with it, I, I believe. But really trial and error, like a lot of the greatest things that we got, we failed once. Like we didn't get the application process or the, the submission. And then we applied again, even after being crushed at that. You know, applications take a long time. You know, they can take weeks of your time and, and focus and you know, attention. And, and then you get rejected and all, all that feels like a waste of time. And then you have to do it again the next year in order to see what happens. So for Keith and I, when I remember we were at South by Southwest and we were applying to UrbanX and we didn't get it the first time. And I remember coming out, coming out of the shower and Keith was like, dude, we didn't get it. And I was like, ah, and I just walked back into the bathroom. I just started yelling and it's like, you know, I was really mad. And then over time, we, you know, accumulated the energy to do it again and we got it. And that time around, we were really sure we, we put a lot of effort into it. I was almost positive, 100% sure that we're going to get it. We did. And from then on, we were, we were so sharp to make every single second count and leverage every single resources. So that, that kind of stuff really, I think, pushes a startup forward is the trial and error. You got to be able to, to accumulate the energy again after the failure to, to just give it that 100% again and again and again. So we were... It's not, about, it's not about the luck. It's really about perseverance. And, and we had that. Keith and I definitely had that. And then we applied to a couple of other things, which we ended up getting. Keith can talk about the NSF trends and such. But recently, the investor round, it's all just based on connections, networking, and everything that I was saying before about introductions. So the main lead investor now, he came in through one of our main partners, a childhood friend. And he just called me up just to talk about PR. And that conversation on one phone call talking about PR, of not investing into this company, investing into something else, uh, right before our Kickstarter launch, which we were also about to do in February 20th, right before the launch was about to happen, the phone call comes in and I'm like, hey, we're about to already put in the money and go through with this. And he's like, listen, Kevin, have an open mind when I say this may not be the best route. You can create your organic growth 
and it can also gain you access to loyal customers off the bat. But you have put five years of your life and effort into this. And for you to go into it with so much risk factor through a campaign like Kickstarter is not advisable. I think you should have a legitimate PR strategy, a legitimate launch strategy for your first product into the market that's not even that easy to grasp. For us to explain to you what haptics is, is a number one educational system. And number two, to actually put it on you and to have you use it is as another uh, learning curve as well. So how do, you, how do you make this first product as impactful as you can without any kind of risk factor of people not getting it? And this all happens to do with marketing, PR, promotions, and a lot of money just dumping into advertisements of education. So this is why we decided to take the money from our lead investor. Just had a conversation with him yesterday. We went to Baltimore to stay at his house for the night with Keith. And that was incredible, amazing, amazing experience. So this, this bond of personality, of relationship with the lead investor, uh, getting it into the system of, of the whole network, and then keep on moving forward from there. Round A, B, C, whatever, all comes from the support of the core foundation, I believe, of the initial angels, which I think we have now. That's really cool. So you've um, said in the past that you've got three guiding principles for your business. One is to make uh, cool stuff to have the greatest impact in your lifetime and to reimagine the world through design for touch. Do you see, and I, I mean, obviously just sort of two things here. One, I think a lot of startups are driven by just building their product and scratching their own itch and they maybe lack social purpose. You seem to have a social purpose in baked into the very core of what your product you're building and the ethos through which your, your business is built around. Do you think that that is creating more interest in your business because you've got a, a narrative around purpose? I think that like anytime you can engage with someone on a level that's more, that's deeper. You know, like I, I had a conversation with a, with a guy who we're in advanced talks with now, you know, former chairman of the board of Lighthouse Guild, which is a blind organization that's really prominent along with Amex and a few other really prominent companies. And, and he said, he was like, you know, I don't, I don't invest into products. I invest in the people, mm-hmm. you know, like, and people want to understand like why you're doing it. They want to understand. Cause like, if you're doing it just so that you can like exit, right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not so inspiring of a narrative to build a team around unless everyone's is just like, yeah, we just really want to get rich, which is a totally perfect narrative. If that works for you. I think on my end, it's like, I I come from poverty. I do feel like I want to get rich so I can raise that generation of my family out of poverty. But at the end of the day, it's like, there's lots of people who are from where I'm from personally that didn't make it. And so my personal responsibility is that like, I need to leave an impact that makes this world better off than I got it. And I went through a lot of pain growing up. So I'm like, if I help one person, then you know, that's one thing. But if I help a million people, then basically divide my total amount of pain by a million and it basically makes it negligible. Like per person helped from the amount of pain that I had to go through as an experience. And so I think that there is a narrative ingredient that we have, but that narrative ingredient isn't a concoction. It's like, this is who I am. This is who Kevin is. You know, like we actually care about sustainability. It's like, you know, like that is actually something that's ridiculously important to us. It's stuff that we think about and we talk about. Like we actually care about like, making an impact on people's lives. Like we didn't want to just design another device that, you know, just sat in your drawer, you know, like we wanted to build something that changed people's lives, you know? And I mean, part of it, honestly, is, I mean, there's a lot of ego around it. Like, let's be really honest is like, you know, like to valid, validate our own existences by doing something great that the world perceives as great. Yeah, that's true. That's part of it. But I think a bigger part of it really is for us. It's a, it's a creative expression. Like it's the, it's the pinnacle of our creative expression, you know, like, cause if you can design something that's cool, that's awesome. But if that cool thing can also help people, that's really cool too. And if that cool thing can help people and be great for the environment. Then you're hitting like, if you can design a product that does nine amazing things. And I think kind of like at a foundational level, the way I like to think about it is, is that like people some kinds of design products that do amazing things for the people who use them, but don't do amazing things for the people who have to build them. You know what I'm saying? Or don't do amazing things for the places where they're built at. You know, it's like kind of like how many different levels can we create impact? You know, like how many slices can we put this thing into? And it's like, 
my ideal version would be that like anyone who touches our product or meets anyone who's ever interacted with us walks away from that interaction better off than they were before they showed up. And like, that's kind of a dream, you know what I'm saying? But like, for me, it's like, that's the thing. Like, how can I, how can we genuinely help? How can we, like, we don't think a lot about, a lot of times we're just kind of like, we're just telling our own personal stories and we're living our lives in a way that we see as fit. And what we do is we see the company as a vehicle to exercise what we want in the world, not the other way around. And so we have a remote work policy because Kevin and I both love traveling. We both don't feel like you need to be sitting in an office from nine to five to get work done. And so we built a company that didn't matter where you were. And now we have engineers in Hamburg. We have a new legally blind developer that we just hired in Detroit. We have interns in Texas and New York and, you know, like, and we have developers working in Romania and, and we all, we figure out a way to make it work because this supports the lifestyle that we want to live. So it's not, it's like, it's like the company is like a really big hammer for us to do what we want to do with as a tool, but we're the driving forces. We don't let the company determine like what we should be doing. And I think that makes it authentic. So can you talk about vision and the roadmap for where you see the technology going and the use cases that it'll solve over the next maybe five years? Yeah. And so, you know, Kevin, I'll, I'll jump in, but, you know, I know you got some add-ins as well, so feel free to pop in after me. But, um, you know, like, the, you know, our, our first and our, our priority is to really nail this, this, this one vertical of working with the blind and visually impaired community. It's the hardest use case and it creates the greatest impact, but it also proves the point to everyone else. Like, you don't need to know what the word haptic means if you know that a person who was blind ran a marathon. And so that's where we're focused at for probably like the next year or two. But the other verticals we see immediately running is uh, into the athletics market. And so, you know, we have a strong connection with runners because of the marathon. So, you know, like running and looking at a map is annoying. Running and hearing that audio person mess up your music or your audio book or your peace and quiet is ridiculously annoying. You know, and so we see lots of opportunities in the space around running, cycling, snowboarding, skiing, hiking, kayaking in the athletic space. And then we see lots of opportunities around using the device as a research peripheral. Uh, because right now, if you want to design or communicate information with haptics or you want to give someone haptic cues, you have very limited options in the space. And so we feel that the Wayband could eventually become the device that gamers use as a peripheral to design. Right now, everything that's doing in the haptic space is like, you know, haptic gloves and they're like $800 with like full, but like, where's like, you have your Bang and Olsen's, right? But where's your, where's your Bose headphones? Where's your Beats, right? You know, like, where's your affordable, good quality vibration that you can use to prototype without having to drop $1,000 on a product that you don't know what you're going to end up doing with for the first time, if it's, if it's your first time. And so we see a huge opportunity in that space. And then we really see a really big opportunity around indoor navigation in particular, once indoor navigation is figured out fully and around licensing the technology for other opportunities like movement learning, essentially, is a great space. Kev, you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, I've been saying this from a pretty early standpoint, uh, the specific product I want to describe. But before that, I, I really was uh, interested in inclusive design. And really five years ago, inclusive design and haptics were really not spoken words that much, even in the design field, engineering field, whatever. I focus a lot on inclusive design because for me, that's what made sense. I also designed cars and boats and stuff back in the day. Pavilions were all, always my interest because it was a collaborative space and it's something that everybody can use, right? It's a public, free space where everybody can get there and it does something to you. It either creates an environment where you're having fun, like a park or a playground, or it's inspiring, or it has some type of you know, uh, conversational element. And I really like that. So for me, inclusive design was the key goal. How does one product work and operate the same for everybody? And phones are not it. Like, you know, visual or audio, anything like headphones even are not, are not it. So for me, like touch is something that everybody can truly use. And it doesn't degrade over time like vision or sound does. So if we can implement touch as a, a very important output channel with technology going forward, I thought we had captured a significant market for everything, for everybody. So to, you know, inclusive design really, for me, ties in with touch. Skin is the biggest organ in the body. Why not use it? 
to communicate the most amount of things with the things around you so you don't have to be distracted mentally. It's, a, it's an intuitive system. So for me, the skin is, is a really important thing. Touch is, touch is inclusive, and uh, I like to incorporate that with the technology background that we have. So for me, that, that's, that's really important. <laughs> and this, this leads into something funny, but not really funny for me. It's baby hats. So baby hats. I know Keith love this. So I was thinking about wearable devices with multiple actuators that would communicate complicated information over time, right? So first one is navigation and so on and everything that Keith was talking about, and it can grow. In the future, what I see is a hat that has so many haptic actuators around it that you put it onto a child at a young age, and it begins to teach them unconsciously about complicated haptic gestures. And this is something that we're missing because when you're young, you listen to you know, music, right? You listen to all this beautiful orchestra and over time you grow to appreciate it, right? You drink some wine and you drink a lot of it over time and then you begin to... No, I didn't, I didn't start drinking wine until I was five. <laughs> uh, I think, think, you know, introduction at an early age always does something. And there was a research paper I read. Uh, if you even put a tight hat, like a beanie hat on a baby, uh, the sensation on, a, on the bald head will create a, a improvement in memory and intelligence over time. So this kind of stuff is interesting to me because it's something that is so easy and it will really alter the way that your life is when you grow up. The way that we teach ourselves about haptic language, there is nothing. And I don't know how much of this is a rated R or you know children thing, but only way that you understand nuanced sensation is when you're working on something really tiny or if you're having sex. Like these are the main areas where you where you turn on your sense of touch to the highest expertise and you use it as a way to communicate. So I, I feel that we're very rudimentary in that sense. We're, we're like animal level. And when it comes to music and fine wine and fine dining, it's just, the level is so extreme, right? You, you pay for the, the four-star restaurant. You pay for that crazy music orchestra performance or that music concert you want to go to. But when it comes to haptic experience, it's so intimate that there is nothing that we can go out to experience that's, that's like that, really, honestly, in comparison. So the baby hat is, is an introduction and it's a conversation. If we had a technology that we can educate from a young standpoint, unsubconsciously teach people about multiple actuators, multiple haptic experiences, and you get comfortable with that over time, by your teenage years, you can have that crazy wearable device that has multiple actuators that are communicating complicated information, but you will, you will not feel intimidated or overwhelmed by it, you know? And I think that's, that's the goal for us. <laughs> Haptics is a, is, a, is a learning curve as a, as a generation. Do you think it's, it's going in step with augmented reality development as well? And the, the, the two will, will, at some point, there'll be a fusion? 100%, 100%. We, we spoke with a lot of VR and AR companies back in the day, but it was too early. I think even the adaptation of AR and VR is still a challenge and a, and a rocky road. Um, over time, when after, when after the optics become so high resolution, you cannot even tell between realism, you know, realism and, and digital, then maybe it'll catch on to the mass population. As you know, Here's what I told somebody. If there's a digital content that you're watching, that degrades your eyesight, which most things do from light and from the, the poor resolution and your eye having to constantly focus and adjust. If this is causing your eyesight to reduce greater than your realistic worldview of just looking at real things, then it will never catch on. It will never catch on to a point where everybody will use it every day to a comfortable point where everybody's adapted. So it will take time to get there. And same thing with haptics as well. Um, so yeah, it's just really about resolution. What do you um, think, what will be the impact of uh, artificial intelligence and sort of machine learning on, on what you're developing? And where does it cross over with some of the innovations being driven by people like Elon Musk with his Neuralink technologies, where you've got machine brain interfaces? Yeah, you know, like, so AI is something that we're really, really excited about. And one is, there's a few things, right? And so we see... On one level, there's the opportunity for, because right now we, there's no haptic design, right? You know, like you can go to school and study graphic design, which is I can design a poster that makes you put your eyes here and drags them around on this area of the screen. You study audio engineering, but there's 
There's no haptic equivalent right now. And so I think a lot of what is going to be happening in this, in this first wave of like haptic creation is like once the tools become available to everyone to be able to create their own haptic experiences with, we're going to be able to take a lot of the information and those learnings to understand like, okay, like, are we creating a haptic and a haptic marketplace? Are lots of people downloading this haptic? Maybe that means something physiologically speaking that this haptic resonates with people more deeply. Can we do more work on that to understand like what those like neurological connections are? And so I'm actually having a conversation right now with uh, uh, the Simons Foundation, the Science Sandbox, which is funded by the Simons Foundation, I believe, was one of the sponsors for the New Inc. Incubator program, which we are part of. And I was talking with those guys over there, and they just opened up a whole branch of computational neurology, I believe it's called, where they use kind of like machine learning to do kind of like big answered questions. And so that part of the space we're really interested in is kind of like, is there a haptic version of C that just sounds great to everybody? You know, and like, how can we start to use these building blocks to be able to reference like, you know, what the human skin is capable of? And we do know that like, you know, like skin does change over time and perception does change over time. It changes even with different conditions like diabetes, for example. Doctors walk around with tuning forks that see if a person can feel a certain type of vibration and make an assessment off of that. Well, we could build a a vibrating device that is placed over the finger that can be altered, you know, to take that data in automatically and to, to run with those results. And so we see like lots of opportunities for haptics and very much in like the diagnostic space in particular. And then there's the other part of haptics that's more of the experiential part where we're trying to replicate an experience in reality. And now that gets challenging because the sense of touch is really complex. There's actually, there's like temperature, there's pain has its own receptors, there's like touch activation, there's deep pressure, there's grasping force and slippage, there's shear, you know, and this whole thing. And like at every given point, your, your hand is basically like each touch receptor is wired to your nervous system to send that information to your brain. So you end up with this crazy wiring set. And if you really wanted to get to it, like at the level of like ready player one, you know, like haptic suit, you basically need to be able to like excite individual touch receptors at like the cellular level and a skin that you would wear over it. And so I think that right now, most of it is being done with vibration. Vibration is an access point, but also too, it's like there's some people who are playing around with temperature. You know, there's lots of ways to communicate it. And that's why like when I initially gave that TED talk, I thought that we were creating a language like A, B, C, D, you know, you know, back, dog, whatever, right? Putting letters together. And now I see it less as language and I see it more as we're taking really strong cultural cues. Like for example, stopping in a car. Like most people in America have been in a car or a bus and have had that thing stop suddenly and then their body jerk forward, right? And so like everyone has the experience to stop or like try to run across the street and your mom grabbed your hand and you, you know, yanked back, right? Everyone has that experience of being suddenly stopped. So instead of designing buzz, 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 and that means stop, what if we just jerked a device? Like if we gave that to you and you never felt it before, could we make you feel like you should stop? You know, like how can we tap into you know, like those cultural memories and use haptic cues to kind of like excite that same type of behavior. And so I think it's going deeper than beyond language, you know, like because the language way is, is very slow. You know, it takes forever to learn a language. I mean, we don't have that kind of time. We want someone to be able to pick this thing about the box and get right to it. And so now we're looking at like, how can we design intuitive experiences using touch the same way that, you know, my ex-partner guided my posture into the right position without saying anything at all. It's very exciting. I'm uh, looking at the time. I, we have to get to the quickfire questions. So I'll let you decide who answers what. What principles do you stand by? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep one. And principles, uh, you know, I would say in a short term, principles of, I mean, the, the things that we talked about, I guess, in, in the words is sustainability is really up there in our principle. Just because the world is going in such a direction and we know where it's going to go, it's just, you know, some things are predictable, some things are not. But this specifically for me is predictable. And sustainability is 100% a requirement and something that we've personally invested. And, uh, you know, I've 
put a lot of effort into in the past. So for me, that's that's number one or number top three, top three. Okay. And the one is definitely the impact of of life. Okay. Yeah. And I I think also to us, like, I think there's like a little bit on the softer side. I think being honesty and like transparency, you know what I'm saying? Like transparency with each other, transparency with our workers, transparency with our processes. You know, I, I think it's it's gone over a long way, and I think that that's something that we definitely stand for as well is uh, transparency and and autonomy. You know, like uh, we're we're helping blind people become more autonomous, but even within our company, we're we're always pushing people to bring what they think is a good project to the table. Because sometimes Kevin and I don't think of we don't think of all the great ideas that are in where it works or in the way band. Like we have a whole team that is just hey, this would be cool, and we're like go do it, see what happens. You know, like that space for failure. You know what I'm saying? Without, within risk, within mm-hmm. tolerance, but like space to fail and to learn from those mistakes on your own is like, I think is a big part of our ethos as well. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Oh, I got one. Canceling the Kickstarter campaign was ridiculously tough, especially for me. We had pushed a campaign back four times and I was like, we are launching on this God darn day rain, sleet, hail, snow, I don't care. And then when our investor showed up, it was like, yeah, Kevin's like, um, so kind of thinks that maybe we should push it back. And I'm like, no, we're not pushing it back. We're moving forward. You know, I was like, I was ridiculously abdomen. And then when it all came down to it, it was like, you know what? All the Kickstarter stuff is in place. Worst case scenario, we lose the awesome 2-20-2020 date that we had. But theoretically speaking, we could do all, all this stuff next week. But if we wait, maybe we don't have to do any of this stuff at all. And then the next week, COVID hit. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, like, thank God. I mean, maybe we would have done great. Maybe everyone's home and wanted something to buy and feel good about. And who knows? But like, I'm just so glad that like, that's not something that we had to be worrying about because everyone would have been like, COVID, COVID, COVID. And we were like, Kickstarter, 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 Kickstarter. You know, the messaging would have been really weird at that time. So I think yeah. I was, that was definitely like... I feel like we, we, we kind of like Keanu Reeves and the Matrix just missed the bullet on that one, you know? Yeah, so I guess, yeah, I definitely agree to Keith's point on that. And I, I do have to say, it's mostly been me that puts a date on the map and say, all right, we're going to launch this date. And then I'm always the one that has to make the calls and say, okay, guys, I think we have to <laughs> stop this thing. So I always look like a, an idiot doing all these things where I'm, I look scattered, but it really comes down to the fast movement of pivoting and also to the team, like got to make the calls to the team, let them know that we're postponing again. And it's just a hard, it's a hard ego destruction. I like, I like it now. The one impactful thing for me, honestly, is choosing co-founders. I, it's felt like, you know, honestly, I get, wait till the end, right? Wait till the end. In the beginning, there's been this incredible emotional roller coaster of five years, right? You're pretty much putting yourself in a marriage and it's as if you say it too early, right? Like, hey, let's do it. Sign the papers without even knowing each other for over what, like two years on and off. We never lived with each other, right? Like, and we just do it. And um, it's such a big commitment without even knowing the full understanding of what this could bring. It's just a very... It's a high moment, you know. You feel good, and you're feeling positive. You're, you're, you know, we're we're young, and we're about to do something awesome. We have an idea, and we just do it. And then once after things can become documented on paper, we start going through this crazy roller coaster. And Keith and I, obviously, we've had our share of fights and arguments and discussions that literally almost tipped us to the edge. And uh, sometimes we're far apart. I'm in Europe, and Keith is here, and you know, we we have this conversation over the phone, and it can get really messy because. We just haven't seen each other face to face in a while. And when we do see each other face to face, things can get even worse because we're like, what are you doing? You know, and then there's always such a messy moment in all of our lives where it, it really like we almost broke up. And that would have been very messy if we did. It would have been incredibly complicated process, a lot of legal paperwork. And I went through it in my mind and it would have been just really awful. And uh, to overcome that kind of stuff, to reestablish our relationship again, and to become best friends again, because in the end, like we are, like we spend the majority of our time talking to each other and discussing most of the things, emotional and physical and realistic on the business side. So Keith is the main person I talk to and see, you know, day to day, uh, even when we're separated. So I think 
at a moment, I thought we made a, I made a mistake. I was like, I was too young. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. Keith was also like a friend. And I just chose a friend who I thought was cool. And then like, now here we are. And now we're, what are we doing? You know, at points of desperation and struggles, it really feels like you've made a mistake. Like I was like, oh, why don't we have a business person? Like, you know, what? Why don't we have like a CTO right now? Like, why are we both designers doing, doing things and arguing about stuff that really is not even moving the needle for us sometimes? And it creates crazy complications. But over time, really, I think it's made us very strong. It made us be able to learn a lot of things that we're not comfortable with, to take positions and ownership of things that we were going to do and really pull through with it. And there are times I've been disappointed, but there are times really I can, I just look Keith in the face and I say, I love you, man. Like we, we did it. Like the time we came back from our lead investor's house, or, <laughs> I was like, listen, you know, it's been crazy, but like, I love you, man. And, you know, I think I couldn't have chose a better founder with me because like, you know, the, the trusting and the, and the transparency and the honesty and this kind of the energy that Keith brings to the table is, is something that you can't just find in, in regular people, honestly. And it's, it's not about, it's not all about intelligence. It's not all about the connections, it's not about this. It's, it's really about how much can you share your life with somebody and feel comfortable and to know that they're never going to be destructive of your personal life and of anything else around it. And that's, that's the safety and, and the comfort I, I feel in my own company with Keith. And I think I'm very grateful for that along. Oh. That was a love declaration. Can I yeah. <laughs> in the audio, but I just would like to, as a woman in the middle, <laughs> <laughs> he just said something very beautiful about you. Yes, 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 yes. No, thank, thank you, man. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> yes, yes, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that like we definitely work through a lot of challenges, and you know, the fact that we're that we can be here, like as cool as we are now, especially with some of the stuff that we went through, is like pretty damn amazing. You know, what I'm saying like. And I think that honestly, it's like, you know, I had the same thoughts too. And, you know, I was like, hmm, if I left this company, what would I do? I was like, hmm, I would start a company just like this one. <laughs> like, okay, so what would I build? I'm like, hmm, I'd build a product pretty similar to what we're building. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, this seems stupid to go and start all over by myself and do the exact same thing that I already just did. And it was like, you know, like we have to figure out some way to make this work because, you know, like, I knew this was what I wanted to do. And that was so strong. And, you know, like, even though we, we, we were fighting a lot, it's just kind of like, like my, my, my younger brother, you know, it's like, it's, it's, he's the only person alive who understands what it's like to grow up in my mother's household to like deal with who my mother was as a person and it's stuff that was around it. And I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like Kevin is the only person who can like relate to this journey with me as a company, you know, like, because he was here for it the whole time. And so I think that, a big shift happened for me was, was really around focusing less on the challenges that our differences bring and more on like, you know, like the resilience that we both had to pull out of ourselves, you know, often in opposition to one another. So it's like, it's not even, we had like the support of one another that like pull these visions through, like we had to do them in, in opposition of one another, which takes more energy and still maintain that same level of conviction. It was just it automatically kind of like level set at a certain, like a deep level of respect, you know what I'm saying? Like for like, and I think at the end of the day, when I looked at everything, you know, like objectively, I just felt like Kevin, he never ever makes a decision that is, that he believes is going to be a bad decision for the company. You know what I'm saying? Like never, ever, you know, like it might not be the decision that I would have made, but it is never, it never has any malice behind it. It never has any like lack of thought behind it. and so. I think over time, I just learned to like, I think the other thing too is that like, I can be a bit on the controlling side of things, you know, like, cause I want things to be a certain way and have a certain process. And so a big part of that was like letting that control go and like trusting Kevin's version of the vision just as much as I trusted my own. And that took me like quite a bit of time. So, you know, like I was, I was probably a pain in the ass, definitely on the early side of things, but you know, we made it. And so I love you too, bro. You know what I'm saying? It's actually really good to like, like, cause now I feel like with everything that we've gone through, like anything on the other side of this it just seems like child's play. Now that it's good. Cause we've been through like shit, you know, it's, it's great. You know, 
Okay. So we charge two fifty each for this session. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take the credit card number of each or one of you. So <laughs> yeah, we take insurance. Session. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I think I think Kevin to pay for this one. You know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You can, um, you can write it off from your taxes. So, you know. I'm going to skip the rest of the quick fire questions because we're running out of time. So, I'm just going to go to the last question, um, which is who should we interview next? This is in the world. Well, the way it works is, is people, we, because we don't decide who we interview, we let all our guests decide. So, it's always serendipitous. So, the guest has someone in their network that they think we should interview. We let them decide. That's how we ended up with you, Keith, because Gene Pinder, who we had interviewed, had then recommended you. So. Mm. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I was say, you, you, you got anybody, Kevin? Let me, let me think of somebody real quick. Let's see. There's so, so many cool people. I'm like, who do I pick? Um, <laughs> is it revolving around interests of impact or is it of design or is it just a... Could be anything. If just someone you think story, we should, we should explore. Oh, Siri got activated. Maybe Siri. Or you can come back to us later and just email us. Yeah, you know what? I got a like a, a few people that I'm thinking off the top of my head. You know, like I think it I think Nick's story might be really cool. You know what I'm saying? Like with upcycles. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like Nick has a pretty interesting story and a, and a pretty interesting background that um Yeah, Nick is actually uh one of uh his he's actually officially like my bro too now. He's uh we came through the Urban X program together, the BMW Accelerator. And uh, he was like our neighbor. And I just talked to him yesterday. I talked to him every day, actually. He's, uh, you know, alone in New York, quarantining himself. And it's like, you know, there. So we, we talk a lot and he had a, a co-founder breakup. So I actually live with Nick. He was my roommate as well. So we go way back. You know, we play chess together like every day for like hours and hours. So we talk about our problems in depth. And uh, he went through a legitimate co-founder breakup where it made him depressed and have incredible amount of stress over time. And he had to go to like, you know, he had to learn about how to deal with this. It was really awful. And he now has an enemy. The co-founder that he broke up with is now starting, uh, now working in a competition company. I don't think you know this now, but he's mm-hmm. now doing that to destroy Nick's company, which is awful. Like, so this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about because he used to ask me when Nick was breaking up with his co-founder, he would ask me a lot of questions about having co-founders and what it means to have good co-founders. And back when Keith and I were having a lot of fight, I would complain to Nick, like, Nick, I think, I think it's time for us to break up too. And he was like, <laughs> we're like wait, wait, Kevin, have you ever felt like Keith has ever done anything to be destructive to you personally? And he asked me that question in the subway. And I was like, honestly, no. I ever, never in my life have I felt that from Keith. I feel like it's just more based on disagreements and confusion and lack of communication. And he's like, okay, well, that's fine. That's like, that's like child's play crap. You know, like this is not an evil act that I had to go through with his co-founder. So I live with three co-founders that broke up with their partners. And by living with them, I got all the scoop and also with the other person as well, being friends with both of them. And it is so, it gets so nasty and so messy and so destructive mentally and physically that it's just, uh, it's just awful. And Nick went through that and he's now incredibly prosperous. He's a partner with Elon Musk's brother, Kimball Musk. He's done incredible work. All oh, right. So he's involved in the community farming. Yes. Ah, yeah. I, but it's so funny that Kimball's name came up. Uh, we were interviewing a guy called Ryan Watson, who was running the North Brooklyn farm here, which was a community farm that shut down in December because of the development at Domino Park. And we were talking about the future of sustainable agriculture and food and stuff. And Kimball's name came up. So if Nick's working, he'd be a fascinating person to speak to then. Yeah. And then, and then also to us, like, uh, just to throw a few more people out there. Is, so I think uh, talking to uh, Charles Edward Catherine, he's an advisor of ours. Uh, he's a Paralympic triathlete. He's also blind. He's done a lot of work in the blind space around advocacy. And at one point, he was the executive director of Surgeons of Hope. Just an amazing, amazing guy who we've had on our team. There's a really another amazing person who's blind. His name is uh, Dan Parker. He's based out of Georgia. And Dan is such a crazy story. He's like, he used to be a, a race car driver and his race car gets into an accident. He wakes up blind, decides that he's not going to stop racing 
and basically ends up becoming the first blind person to race in the Sierra Nevada salt flats on a motorcycle because he still technically had a license. And, you know, he, you know, just had to go straight. There's nothing to hit. So he came back and became the first blind person to race. And then the year after that, he came back to become, uh, he broke a speed record with no exemptions for his blindness. And he teaches like metal, he teaches like wood shop, like totally blind. So he has like, like no vision at all because he lost his sight physically. And so he teaches like wood shop in a high school, like table saws, band saws, totally blind, just an amazing guy. And then uh, our, one of our advisors, Marcus Engel, I'd recommend him as well. Marcus has kind of been our original inspiration for coming into the blind space. Basically, he got into an accident, had 300 hours of reconstructive surgery on his face, became blind in that process or before that process and realized how much healthcare sucks for people who are blind and wrote six books about it. And now he tours the world as a public speaker and talking about like healthcare advocacy uh, for people with disabilities in particular with blindness. But also like representing, uh, he works a lot with like people on the front lines, so in the healthcare space. So I think with everything going around with COVID, you know, his experiences might be really interesting as part of the, the conversation here. So those cool. are my recommendations. Right. Well, we'll follow up by email and uh, start start the introduction. So I just wrap up. Uh, thank you for both for your time and your sort of generosity, and just acknowledge you for what I think is a profound sense of purpose and what you're actually doing and having clarity and the persistence that seems to have um, been clearly persistence that's uh, been part of both your characters and both your journeys. And for being, I think, uh, Keith, your radical candor that you talked about, that uh, I don't think you would be in this position and, and respect you for your vulnerability and reflecting on your relationship as startup founders. I don't think you would be where you are without that uh, vulnerability and radical candor and to just uh say keep that problem solving mentality up because i think you're doing amazing work and we really look forward to seeing where it goes awesome thank you so much for the time it was absolutely amazing thanks guys cheers bye if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.